So let's pray together as we uh, turn to Matthew uh, chapter 24 and verse, we're going to start in verse number 36. Lord willing, today we're going to turn the page on our, uh, on our study. We're still, we're still studying the coming of the Lord, the second coming of Christ. But hopefully we will uh, kind of turn the page and go in a different direction. <clears throat> now that we have a, a firm, I hope what is a firm and a uh, clear understanding of at least the major points about the coming of Christ and the events that the Lord has told us will come to pass. And uh, we did not, of course, we did not do a, a, a seriously deep dive or anything uh, profound or try to uh, dissect every single statement about the coming of Christ and, and those kinds of things. But it is important that we understand, first of all, that Jesus is going to return. Just like he ascended, so he will return, Acts chapter 1, in like manner. That's the first thing. He is going to return. And he ascended bodily, he ascended personally, and so he will return. In fact, the Bible even says in Zechariah that he will return actually to the same mountain from which he ascended. And so I believe that. And you know what? As I've studied this, uh, subject, uh, preparing for Sunday school and just gone over the verses and read over them lots of times, you know what I realized is that study has really made me look forward with expectation to the Lord's return. And it's, uh, you know, some people, and you, there's probably people in, in this room that have thought, well, you know, maybe there's, you think of the coming of the Lord and thoughts of perhaps fear coming to your mind, thoughts of uh, perhaps even dread, thoughts of uh, maybe you're not so interested in that right now because you have a life to live, you have things to do, and, uh, but the Lord has, a, has in, the, in the Word of God, has a clear uh, guidance for us to help us to know how we are to respond to His coming. All right, so let's uh, begin in Matthew 24 after we pray. And then we're going to read a few verses there and uh, clear up some things, hopefully, and then uh, we'll, we'll go to the book of Luke. Okay, let's pray together. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to study your word. Thank you for everyone that's here and listening in, and thank you for your goodness to us. Lord, I ask you to please guide our study, uh, both in what I say, but also in our hearts as we hear, that we would hear the right thing and understand the right thing. And our, our heart and our mind would be in tune with uh, what you have for us in your word. Lord, help us as we study your word. We, we confess that we, we need your instruction, not just instruction from a man, but instruction and things brought to our remembrance by the Holy Spirit. So, Lord, would you please help us as we meet together around your word to, to understand and know more about you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Matthew 24 and verse number 36. Matthew 24 and verse number 36. Of course, Matthew 24, we've already discussed, is a reference, uh, the end of the world, which is, uh, again, just as a matter of, of clarity, the end of the world is not, is not the final battle where humankind nukes itself into oblivion. That is pop culture. The end of the world revolves around one event and one event only, which is what? 
Anybody want to speak up? Come on now. Exactly. The second coming of Christ. So it's not a matter of humankind nuking each other into oblivion, which is what Armageddon and people think Armageddon is, is about. It's not about that at all. It's about Jesus Christ returning and taking this world to, as His kingdom, which is rightfully His. And that's, you know, I think people, and I think I have scriptural backing for it to say people are more interested with humankind nuking themselves than Jesus coming. <laughs> Uh, because uh, if, if, if the matter is just humankind nuking themselves into oblivion, then that means maybe we can do something to stop it. But if it's Jesus coming, there's not a thing you can do to stop it. And that's actually what's going to happen. It's amazing how, it's amazing how people in, in culture will borrow truths in the Bible and just kind of excise and remove Jesus from it. They'll leave all the rest that's not about Jesus, but they'll just... To, they'll, they'll surgically remove Jesus Christ from it, and then they'll, they'll, they'll continue to, to talk about that matter. And uh, the end of the world is a classic example of that. All right, Matthew 24, verse 36. The Bible says this, But of that day and hour, this is, of course, the coming of Christ, knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Okay, let me ask you a question. Do you know what day or hour or time that Jesus will come to take his saints to heaven? Do you know that answer? Do you know when Jesus is coming? The trumpet sounds, dead in Christ shall rise, and all those things that we'll look at later. Do you know that? No, you don't know it. But that is not what this verse is talking about. Now, how do we know? Because... That day and hour in this passage is a reference to the revelation of Jesus Christ the after the tribulation that, that we've been discussing. We study Matthew 24 in detail. That day and hour is a reference to when He returns bodily and every eye sees Him in the clouds and the saints are with Him, right? And He comes to wipe away all those uh, all, and uh, bring judgment upon the world. That's what this is talking about, that day and hour. Remember, you can't, and, and I want to say this as, as a preference, I said preference, that's not right, to preface, thank you, Joseph, as a preface to what we're going to read. You've got to be very careful. Just because something sounds familiar to us does not mean that in the context it means what we think it means, Okay? I'm not going to give you anything that's a hidden meaning. We'll see everything in clear and plain language here. But just be aware that sometimes we latch on to things because it sounds, in the Bible, because they sound familiar, but they're not referring to the things we think they're referring to. We just, we're latching on to the familiar language. All right? But of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But... As the days of Noah were, that's of course Noah, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. So here's a, an analogy, a comparison. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark. And knew not, that's the key phrase, and knew not. You ought to put a little, little line on that. If you mark your Bible, 
You ought to mark that and knew not. That's the key. And knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Okay, so the Lord is using the story of Noah as an analogy, as an example to help us understand the time leading up to the coming of Christ and His coming, okay? Now, let me, let me ask you this. We've already discussed the tribulation. It was very important that we come to a kind of a broad understanding of what the tribulation is for. What is the purpose of the tribulation, this seven-year period? What is the purpose of it as we've studied in the Bible? What's the purpose? There are two primary purposes that we talked about that are actually we sought in the Scripture. What are they? Number one, anybody? To turn the Jews to Jesus, which right now they don't want to have anything to do with Jesus. Turn the Jews to Jesus, and just as a side note, you know what's amazing is even in Israel, like I was listening to an interview with Benjamin Netanyahu the other day, and even the way he talks, he's a religious Jew, okay? But even the way he talks, he cuts God out of his conversation. It's always about providence or, you know, all these, all these, uh, all these uh, euphemisms, miracles, and he talks about the Jewish people. And he, he talks about Jewish history and coming out of Egypt with no mention of God whatsoever. Not, no acknowledgement of God's, the, the personal God of the Bible, overseeing and all that. I'm just... <laughs> Anyhow. So, the first, the first purpose of the tribulation is to bring the, turn the Jews back to God. What's the second? We read in the Bible. To bring God's punishment and wrath upon the world of the ungodly. In other words, it's purely punitive. It's not to turn the world to God. In fact, when God, when God pours His wrath upon this world and all these judgments and terrible things we read, men will not turn to God. We studied that already. They will actually blaspheme God. They will turn away from God even harder than they had previously. So that's the two purposes of the tribulation. So the tribulation, excluding what God's purpose is with Israel, the tribulation is a time of great judgment, a time of punishment, sorrow, anger, and wrath, right? That's what it is, okay? Just like in the days of Noah. When God told Noah to build the ark, and he says, man's time is limited, I'm going to judge them, that was a day of judgment. It's an, it's an analogy, okay? Now, look at verse number uh, 38 again. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Now, we know that in the days of Noah, mankind had become wicked. But this, is, these, these, this verse number 38 is not referring to man's wickedness. Eating, is eating a sin? No, thankfully. Drinking, is drinking a sin? Assuming it's not alcohol. No. Is marrying a sin? Joseph, is, being, is getting married a sin? He's like, he has this big smile on his face. No way. Exactly. Giving in marriage is not a sin. These are not sins. What it is, is it's a reference to normal life. Normal life. Normal life. So in the days of Noah, people were eating and drinking and carry on, carrying on with their life as normal. As if there was no judgment as if there was no punishment, as if God didn't exist, as if God wasn't going to do anything about the continued degradation of the world. 
As if God was just going to sit by. He's far away. He's not, he, he, we don't need to worry about him. As we excise him from our thoughts and our society, from our worldview, as we, as we live like he's not there, God's not going to do anything. In verse 39, what does it say? What does it say? And knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So the, the sin that's mentioned here, the state and the condition of the world that's mentioned here that will meet the coming of Christ is a, is a negligent and ignorant world that thought nothing like this would ever happen. God would never bring punishment. God would never look upon this world with wrath. And it caught them by surprise for that reason. Okay? But let me ask you a question. Let's read verse number 39 again. And knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. A clear, these are clear, you, you, you guys know I'm a word guy, I'm a grammar guy. That last part of verse number 39 tells us that this is a comparison. And you not, uh, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. So when Jesus comes, the analogy we look to is Noah, in Noah's day. Let me ask you a question. When the flood came, where was, where was Noah? Where, where was Noah and where was his family? In the ark. In the ark. Who was the judgment of the flood brought Upon whom was it brought? Say again. Out, those outside the ark, which is everyone except Noah's family. Okay? So you're picturing a flood. These people are doing their thing. They think everything's fine. They're eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. They're living a normal life. They think God's, they think their wickedness increasing. God's turning a blind eye to it. He's not interested. He's not going to do anything. And God has already set the timer. Right? We know with Noah, he had already set a timer long before. He said man's, years should be 100, man's day should be 120 years. God had already set the timer. They thought everything was fine and God's timer's ticking down. Well, when the timer finally came, uh, finally came to its conclusion, God told Noah to get into the ark. He shut the door and then God brought a flood upon the earth and it, what did it do? All the sinners that were outside of the ark were taken away, right? Is that how you understand and read these? No, not, not what, not do you agree with me? Do you see that in these verses? Who was taken away in verse 39? And knew not until the flood came and took them all away. Who was taken away? The ungodly, okay? Keep reading. Then, now, now he's done with the analogy. Now he's turning back to the real thing that, he, uh, that he's referring to. Then shall two be in the field. The one shall be taken and the other left. Two women shall be grinding at the mill. The one shall be taken and the other left. Now in the days of Noah, now, now first of all, let me acknowledge you and I both have heard 
many people use these verses to describe the way the rapture will be. There'll be one Christian will be, a Christian will be uh, uh, plowing in the field next to his buddy who's a non-Christian. And uh, the Lord will come in the twinkling of an eye. This is how it's described. The Lord will come in a twinkling of an eye. And the Christian who's plowing will vanish out of sight, leaving behind the, the, the ungodly man, the man who does not know, know God. But that's not what this is saying. Because in the context, when you look at in the flood of Noah, which is the analogy, who was taken away? It was the ungodly that was taken away, not the godly. It was the ungodly who was taken away. And then the Lord says, okay, and in the coming of the Son of Man, it will be that same way. Two will be in the field, one shall be taken, the other left. Two will be at the mill, one shall be taken, and the other left. But the person taken is the person taken in judgment, like they were taken all away in verse 39 in the flood. So who is left behind? Who is left behind? The believer. Now, that probably throws some of your theologies into, into a little bit of turmoil because we've heard our entire Christian life that Jesus is coming and the rapture will be just like this. But this is not referring to the rapture. Again, this is referring to the time of judgment when Jesus comes. The context clearly describes that. Now you say, now hold on. So what you're saying is there is a rapture for the ungodly. Exactly. There is. Now hold your place here and look at the book of uh, Matthew chapter 13. We're going to look at another parable. Matthew 13, verse 24. This is called the parable of the wheat and the tares, okay? Now, please, as we read it, I encourage you to read it with me. That is not out loud, unless you just want to, but... Read it with me and follow along as we read it. Not just this, but also the interpretation that the Lord gives later, okay? Matthew chapter 13, verse 24. Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares, which are in essence weeds or things you don't want to grow with the wheat, among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst not thou sow good seed in thy field? From whence then hath it tares? He said, he said unto them, Excuse me, an enemy hath done this. The servant say, uh, said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? But he said, Nay. While, lest while ye gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. Now notice verse 30. Let both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, gather ye together first the tares and bind them in, a, in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. 
So there is a harvest, both of the wheat and of the tares, okay? Now, you say, well, what does that mean? And you know, if the Lord had just left that parable as it is, then our interpretations would be largely subjective. But He didn't. He told us what He was talking about, okay? Look down at verse number... Verse 36. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house, and His disciples came unto Him, saying, Declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field. He answered and said unto them, He that soweth the good seed is the Son of Man. That's Jesus. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. Now here's the key of this passage, verse 39. What does it say? The harvest is the what? The end of the world. What is that? Biblically, it is when Jesus comes. At His second advent, that's found primarily in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24. Okay? He says that this parable of this harvest is referring to, and it's picturing, the second coming of Christ. All right? Look at what it says. The harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. Verse 40. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. Now look at verse 41. Now, in Matthew 24, I posited to you that those taken away in judgment, two shall be in the field, two shall be grinding at the mill, one shall be taken, the other left. What I said is, in the context, the ones taken away are are the same as the ones taken away in the flood, that is, the ungodly. And those left behind were were not the ungodly, but the Christians, according to the context. What I want to show you now is this, this, this truth is also repeated here. Look at what it says in verse number 41. The Son of Man shall send forth His angels, and they shall gather out of His kingdom all things that offend. See that? And them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. See that? Who is gathered here? Who is taken away by the angels? It's the ungodly. You see that? And this also is a reference to the time period called the end of the world, which is when Jesus comes at His second advent to judge. So it's no wonder, knowing the purpose of the tribulation, which culminates in Jesus' personal appearance and return, it's no wonder, knowing the tribulation is about judgment, that there is a point at which the Lord gathers the wicked together and judges them and they perish and their soul goes to hell and those that remain are the righteous and the believers that go and remain and go into His kingdom. All right, we've studied that in detail. Verse 43 indicates this as well. Then shall, so once you remove the wicked, what are you left with? You're left with the righteous. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. You see that? 
The wicked are taken away in judgment, Matthew chapter 24, like in the days of Noah. Those who remain are the righteous, and they remain to go into his kingdom. In the same way that Noah didn't go to heaven, Noah, if you want to talk about someone that went to heaven, you talk about the rapture of the church, you need to be looking at maybe Elijah or looking at maybe Enoch. But if you're talking about Noah or Lot, God judged the people around them, protected them from judgment, and they remained on the earth, right? Noah was left behind on the earth. Lot was left behind to live. Now, God protected them, but they, were, they remained. And that's the, that's the righteous at this time, okay? I ha- you have to clarify this because there's, again, you go to Matthew 24, one shall be taken, the other left. One shall be taken, the other left. We latch on to it because it sounds familiar. But when you do that, here's the problem. Now, listen, when you latch on to that and you say, that's the rapture of the church, you inject all sorts of doctrinal problems. Now you have the church passing through a period of judgment in which God judges the world, right? Because that happens at the tail end of all the things we, terrible things we read in Matthew 24. So that's why it's important for us to understand who is taken, who is left, because if the wicked are taken, it can't be the rapture of the church. You see, and that that brings us to what I want to begin talking about today, which is the rapture of the church. We got to get rid of some of this stuff and kind of unlearn some of the things we've heard. And I've heard, you know, you got a whole Left Behind series with Kirk Cameron and it's, you know, the super dramatic and planes crashing and towers falling and all this stuff. You know, it's it's an app and I wasn't going to say an apoplectic, but that wouldn't be right. Although it's that too. It's apocalyptic. There we go. Apocalyptic scene. So to begin our study on the rapture of the church, which which we will see is a distinct event. It's a distinct event. And, um, but let's begin by looking at Luke chapter 21. And I want to show you an interesting uh, statement in Luke 21, and then that'll probably probably be all of the time that we have, I imagine. <clears throat> Luke 21, verse number 34 is where, where we will begin. Now, just to get the context, look at verse number 11. Great earthquakes shall be in diverse places and famines and pestilences and fearful sights and great signs. Verse 12 talks about the persecution. Verse 17, and ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. Then you go down to verse number 22. For these be the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. We talked about this, I think, last week, verse 24. Look what it says. And they shall fall by the edge of the sword. Talking about the Jews. And this is actually a reference to the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. And how do I know that? 
They shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. You see that? That's, that's up until our day. And then you jump to verse 25. There shall be signs in the sun and the moon, men's hearts failing them for fear. Verse 26, powers of heaven shall be shaken. Verse 27, and then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud of power and great glory. So what I want you, reason I read those verses here and there is I wanted you to see that this is basically the equivalent of Matthew chapter 24. There's a few differences, but it's basically the same. The events leading up to the personal, visible, glorious return of Christ to the earth with his saints to set up his kingdom. Okay? We call it the second advent. Okay? This, again, this is the same context. All the judgments that culminate in the Lord's personal return, the destruction of the wicked from the earth, the rapture, which is what we just got done reading, the rapture of the wicked, right? Now, verse 34. In this same context, I want you to see the the, uh, significance of this. And take... Heed to yourselves, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness and cares of this life, so that that day come upon you unawares. Now, some of you are fearful that some of you that like to surf are afraid that the Lord is saying you should not surf. Most of us, however, It doesn't matter to us at all because the only surfing we do is on the internet. This is not surfing. This is surfeiting. Anybody know the definition of that? Mrs. Aguilar, does she know what surfeiting means? Joseph probably does. Okay, let somebody else. Joseph, do you know what it is? Off the top of your head, of course. Definitely involves distraction. Surfeiting. Conducting frivolous activities. Well, sort of. Not not dead on. Surfeiting is an interesting word. The Lord says beware. But you know what it actually means? It actually means eating to excess. That's a weird thing to say. (laughs) Eating to excess to the point that to the point that the effect of overeating, you actually like want to throw up. It's just kind of an unusual, you know, you think of, it's the same thing as getting drunk to the point of passing out and having a hangover, but with food. The key there is excess. And you think, you go back to the church of chapter three of the book of Revelation, the church of Laodicea, what what did they do? They were rich, and increase with goods. I mean, of course, the missionaries here from Togo, Brother Emmanuel knows that everyone in places like Togo and in Cambodia, everybody that has money is really fat. They are. They're fat. You know why? Because they have the money to eat as much as they want, and they eat and eat and eat until they surf it. Not surf. 
because then you would just sink. <laughs> they eat to excess. Here's the point. In Revelation chapter 3, you have the church at Laodicea, and, and the Lord charges them with a fault and says, you have everything. They're overcharging themselves with eating and drinking. In other words, it's an excessive society. The Lord says, Be care, beware of that. Cares of this life. Man, it's just a perfect description of the time in which we live. We have everything in abundance. We can, I mean, you think of, you know, Thanksgiving. What do we do on Thanksgiving? I mean, I don't know if you have Thanksgiving in Togo, but in the United States, like, the, I know you don't have American Thanksgiving in Togo, but... You might have an equivalent. But I know you have holidays where people eat and eat and eat and eat. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. All countries have that. Well, we do that and we eat to the point of, of uh, you know, almost sin. But this is talking about how that we live a life that is careless without regard to God. Without regard, all we care about is material things earthly and fleshly pleasures and we do not give a thought to God because all these other things choke our life out so that we're not thinking about or waiting for or hoping for the coming of the Lord. You see, the cares of this life, the pleasures and the comforts choke out that desire so that we can't honestly say, come, Lord Jesus, come, please come today. I want to ask you a question. If the Lord Jesus Christ came today to take us to take us to heaven, if he came today, would you be glad about that? I know you know the right answer is yes, yes. But there's a reason why the Lord says that there's a crown waiting for those, all of those that what? Love his appearing. Do you love the Lord's appearing? If not, there's a strong, if you are a born-again Christian, you know God, you know you, are, you have eternal life, and you do not love His appearing, first of all, you should. But secondly, if you don't, you should ask yourself, Lord, why don't I? And it's probably the cares of this life that have choked out that desire to see, to see Jesus. That's probably what it is. But let's keep reading. Verse 35. For as a snare, it, it's the coming of the Lord, shall come on all them that dwell on the face of the earth. So there'll be, just like we read earlier in Matthew and in, and in uh, Matthew 13, we read that everybody's just eating and drinking, carrying on with their regular life, enjoying the comforts of this world provides and the cares of this world. And then the, the Lord returns and his return is a snare. It is a trap, just like an animal walking through the forest does not see the snare until it's too late, right? That's the way the world will be taken by surprise. Now, does everybody understand? That's referring to the time before Jesus comes in judgment, right? In judgment. But look at what the next verse says. It's just out of the blue. Look at what it says. Watch ye therefore and pray always that ye may be worthy, may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. 
This is not referring to being preserved in the midst of them. This is referring, you think of all the terror, what are the these things in that verse? What are they? Escape all these things. What are the these things? It is all of the judgments that are in Matthew 24 and in this chapter, Luke 21. And the Lord says, there will be people that will escape those things. He says, you need to pray always and you need to watch that you may be accounted worthy to escape and then what? To escape all those judgments and to stand before the Son of Man. That's a reference to our giving an account to Him. What you find in Luke 21, I believe, and I think the, the, the text of Scripture bears this out, is in the midst of the Lord talking about all the judgments that He's going to bring on the world of the wicked and all these terrible things, signs in the heavens, on the earth, all these terrible things that will happen, the Lord says, but it would be better to escape all of these judgments and to stand before the Son of Man. And you know what? Nestled in this chapter about the judgment of God is a little hint that there will be people who escape it all entirely. And that is, I believe, a reference to the rapture of the church in which the church who is not under the judgment of God, not one small little piece of judgment, is not, under, is not the world of the wicked, but this time of great trouble, this time of judgment, the Lord allows us to escape and to stand before the Son of Man. The doctrine of the rapture teaches this, and we're going to go into it in detail, but even we'll go into this in great detail. The doctrine of the, of the rapture of the church teaches that Jesus comes for His saints before that judgment falls before any of those judgments fall. And He takes us up to be with Him, and we stand before Him. And He hands out rewards according to the work that we've done in our body. Now, would you rather pass through those terrible judgments, or would you rather be accounted worthy, worthy to escape all of these things and to stand before the Son of Man? I think Jesus, what Jesus is saying, maybe we should, we should hope that we're a part of. And if you're a Christian, you will be. If you're a believer, you will be. That you will escape it. And that's what we're going to concentrate our study on from here on out. Let's pray together.